for them. So that's all available for you coming up. Um, it was about the third week of December, and I confess I could not wait for Christmas. Nearly every single day when I would arrive home on the bus, the first thing I would do is I would head into the house and into our living room to check on the Christmas tree. Now, you need to know that in our house, you never went into the living room. The, the living room was for guests, not for us. In fact, we, we were the kind of family that kept the plastic covers still over the couch and chairs. Do you, uh, you, you guys ever do that? Some of you, yeah. Um, <clears throat> we were disallowed as children from going into the living room, except at Christmas time. So every day when I would come home, I would run into the living room to check because Every day for weeks prior to Christmas, my parents would begin to add Christmas gifts. And you knew what I was doing, right? I was checking for gifts that had a certain name on it. I didn't care about my sister's. I cared about my name. I wanted to see what had my name on it. And what I would do is uh, I would go ahead and I would pick up, I, I would do it carefully so that mom couldn't see me. I mean, dad was sleeping. Dad was working the third shift, so he couldn't see it anyway. But I would do it really carefully and quietly so mom could see it. And I would pick up the gifts and I would shake them. And if there was a rattling noise, that was a good sign. That meant it was something worth having. If there was like a swishing sound, I'd put that in the back of the tree. That's like the, the end. Because that just meant it was close. Something like that. Every day I would check it. And when the shaking didn't work, you, you, you kind of resorted to the old trick of holding it up to the light and pushing the wrapping paper up. And the only way that worked was if the original label was still on it and your parents didn't know your trick and they didn't start buying the thicker, heavier foil paper. But other than that, that, that worked really well. And I have no doubt that I drove my parents crazy for those days and weeks leading up to Christmas. And then, after what seemed like an eternity, Christmas Day finally arrived. And all I had been looking for was finally here our family gathered in the living room and we took our usual places, whatever those were in our family. And can you imagine, think about that morning, Christmas morning, here I am 10 years old. I am handed the heaviest gift under the whole tree. It, I had looked at it previously because it had my name on it and I picked it up, it was heavy. I had no clue what it could. I didn't know. But I, I'm, I get this gift on Christmas morning, and the way our family did it, I don't know how your family did it, but the way our family did it is every person in the family would be given one gift, and then you would wait until everybody had their gift. Then we'd all tear into it. And we just went around and did that until all the gifts were gone. But I got this one heavy gift, and I waited until everybody got theirs, and I tore into that gift. Can you imagine the dismay that was felt when I opened this gift and it was a box of dishes. Corral dishes, to be exact. Can you imagine? And I'm looking around like, who in the world gives a 10-year-old boy dishes? And I happened to glance over at my mom. My mom was sitting in the chair over in the corner, and uh, she was nearest to the doorway, so that therefore she could go get stuff. And my mom had a gift that had her name on it, and I had noticed it in my shaking of the gifts earlier, and I thought it was a broom or something like that, just based on how it was wrapped. But I watched my mom opening it, and as she's opening it, she's kind of watching me. Now, that's kind of weird. 
And as she's opening it, all of a sudden I realize she opened not a broom, but it was a Daniel Boone flintlock rifle with a coonskin cap. They knew I was shaking the gifts, apparently, and so they thought it would be a great trick to put the wrong label on the wrong gift. I, I say that to you only so that you understand better why I am the way that I am. I have been scarred forever because of it. Um, last week, we began to look at this popular song that was made popular in the Lemon Drop Kid by Bob Hope, but then actually made famous by Bing Crosby. And I won't bore you with my voice again, but the words go something like this. City sidewalks, busy sidewalks, dressed in holiday style. In the air, there's a feeling of Christmas. Children laughing, people passing, meeting smile after smile. And on every street corner, you'll hear silver bells, silver bells, it's Christmas time in the city. Ring-a-ling, hear them sing. Soon it will be Christmas Day. And last week we looked at the idea of busy sidewalks filled with people hurrying to who knows where. But today I want to talk about the unmistakable feeling of Christmas, the feeling of anticipation. During the days leading up to Christmas, expectations run high. But the question that ha hits all of us, especially as we age and we grow a little bit older, the question that hits us is, will Christmas deliver on all the hype, all the feelings? Now, i got to tell you that as I have aged, I have found that Christmas sometimes falls short in terms of the feelings. That doesn't mean that I don't enjoy Christmas. I do. It doesn't mean that I don't find it meaningful. I do. It's just that <clears throat> over the years, something has changed. I, as I look around the room at the pile of ripped up paper, bows and ribbons strewn all over the floor, empty boxes in a heap, I confess, and I, maybe you're like this, sometimes I can begin to feel a little bit melancholy. Maybe even a little bit sad. A little bit depressed and discouraged. Maybe even a little bit of loneliness. And I can be left thinking... Is this all there is to it? I mean, all the weeks leading up to it, all of the anticipation, all the excitement, and it's over in minutes. I, I don't know what your family's like. Maybe you're much more orderly than our family. In our family, I mean, we take weeks and weeks. My wife begins shopping for Christmas the day of Christmas for the next year. And she buys throughout the whole year and she keeps things in tubs. She keeps them very organized. And, like that. and then when it comes time, she wraps them and she puts them in piles so that every pile is even and it all looks good for all the grandkids, all the kids, all that kind of stuff. She does it well. But we're done within minutes of opening all of those gifts. And sometimes I left thinking, is that it? Is Christmas really over? Where did all the air go? You know, the air that has that exciting feeling of Christmas. Why is it that we can feel so gloomy so quickly after Christmas? There's actually a psychological term for it called post-Christmas depression. It really is. People commit suicide during that time because Christmas doesn't lead up to 
the expectations that they had anticipated. I don't know what our problem is. Sometimes I wonder if we think we could somehow magically become young again and capture all of that same excitement that we used to feel. I wonder, is it possible that all of the excitement leading up to Christmas has less to do with the gifts and actually is a type or a symptom of something much deeper that God actually intended. That there is a promise that has been made that portends to something greater than just a gift that you open and leave the paper on the wayside. A large group of people in the Bible dealt with the same kind of thing where they were dealing with discouragement and struggle, trying to figure out what, what about what you promised? I thought it was going to be better than this. And they dealt with what I am calling sky-high expectations. These were God's people, the Jews, the nation of Judah. By the time the prophet Isaiah came along, that we looked at last week and we're going to look at again today, by the time Isaiah came along, things were not going well. The Jewish monarchy was in tatters. Isaiah delivered a promise. We looked at it last week in Isaiah 7.14. It says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. Isaiah went on to say a couple of chapters later, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it forever. A promise, an expectation had been given. A gift was on the delay, on the way. They used a special word for this gift. That word is Messiah. That's the word that we most often relate to him, but the Greeks actually called him Christos. That was their word for Messiah. Christ means the anointed one who comes with his anointing. And when this Messiah came, they believed that he would overthrow all of the governments that they had become subjugated to. He would deliver them and he would bring with him the promise of new life. He would set them free from controlling governments. In Isaiah 61, that's the section of scripture we're going to actually plant on today. Isaiah 61, Isaiah standing in the place of the Messiah speaks for the Messiah, and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The most hopeful people among the Jewish people believed that God would send a Messiah and he would set them free. But Isaiah scoffs at such a small vision. Because he wasn't coming just to set them free from another government. He was coming to give them a brand new day and a brand new life. A new and better world. The acceptable year of the Lord or the year of the favor 
of our God. This all points to what was called Jubilee. And some of you who have read the Old Testament will recognize that term, Jubilee. You see, back in the Old Testament, God had ordained that on the 50th year, every 50th year would be called a year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, all prisoners would be set free. All slaves could go home, free people. All debt would be completely forgiven. Wouldn't you like that, by the way, on December 26th? All debt completely forgiven. It was a great idea, wasn't it? But do you know that in all of the Jewish history, there was never one time when there was a jubilee. They never put it into effect. That which God had promised, the big promise of God, jubilee, they never even celebrated one time. Here in Isaiah, God says, what you won't do, I will do. The Messiah will bring this year of jubilee, the acceptable, the year of the Lord's favor. So among the Jews, freedom was being threatened. And the whole government was more and more corrupt. And they weren't living with much hope at all. There was no sense of real hopeful expectation. But suddenly, Isaiah comes along with this prophecy. And hope begins to be born inside of them. I don't know how many of you saw the movie. It came out several years ago. It was called Castaway with Tom Hanks. Uh, one of the things that struck me about the movie was that Tom Hanks took a picture of his fiance, who again, he's abandoned on an island. He's a castaway, but he takes this picture of his uh, fiance and he, he looks at it every single day, longing for the time when he would be rescued and he would be able to go back and be with his fiance. And that's even though he never had a promise of being rescued. And yet here in Isaiah, God gives the Jewish people a promise that a deliverer would come, that God would rescue them, and their hearts longed for that. They had sky-high expectations. And then ultimately the day finally came that we normally read in Luke's Gospel chapter 2. The day comes when the promised Messiah emerges. Jesus comes on the scene. Luke chapter 4, John the Baptist has been preaching about the coming Messiah when suddenly he spies a man in the distance. His name was Jesus. But John calls out and says, look at him, look at him. That's the Messiah. That's the one who's going to deliver us from the tyranny of the Roman government. The very next thing we read is that Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil. But then the very next thing we read in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, is this. He reads this. So he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he was brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled 
in your hearing. Jesus read the very words that Isaiah had promised in his prophecy, and he said, today, I'm putting the air back in Christmas. Today, that which was promised to you has come to pass, the year of the Lord's favor. News about him spread throughout the whole region. Jesus began to perform signs, wonders, and miracles. And yet we read three chapters later, John is in prison. John, who proclaimed him as the Messiah, the Lamb of God, John's in prison, and he sends two of his disciples, and he says this, John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or should we look for another? All of that hype, all of that buildup, John had proclaimed it. It's here. But when things didn't happen the way that he thought they would, he becomes discouraged, just like many today. John was basically saying, are you really the Messiah? Because if you are, I thought you were going to deliver us from a controlling government that's trying to make us wear masks. I thought you were going to come and rescue us, save us, heal us, and drive away this COVID virus. And yet, here I am, in prison, with no hope. What a letdown this Christmas has been for John the Baptist. Which realizes for us, rather, it gives to us the third point, which is unrealized expectations. It's where things don't go the way that we thought they would. Some of you uh, here in this room, I don't know, are, are maybe some, maybe one, are Bills fans. Um, I moved here in 1991, the year that the Bills played in their first Super Bowl. How many of you guys remember that? Do you remember that they were leading with moments to go? And all they had to do was to kick off one time and stop them in their tracks, and they would have won the Super Bowl. They kicked off. And the opposing team, the Giants, I remember it because I had come from Watertown where the Giants were the favored team. The Giants received the kickoff, and they did lateral after lateral and went down the sideline and scored a touchdown, and the Bills lost the Super Bowl. Not once, not twice, not three times, but four years in a row they lost. Even some of their best fans began to give up hope because expectations were not being met. Just a couple of weeks ago, they were playing Arizona. Maybe some of you guys saw the game. I, I don't watch a lot of football, but I happened to catch this one. They were playing Arizona, and they were behind. And with 39 seconds to go, they scored a touchdown and took the lead. They kicked off, and Arizona brought the ball down the field a little bit. And with two seconds left on the clock, the Arizona quarterback threw a Hail Mary pass. And you knew it was coming. It was the only thing that was a chance. You knew it was going to happen. And everything inside of you is saying, you should know it's going to happen. They threw the Hail Mary pass. It was caught. And the Bills lost again. And that's kind of what the Jews felt inside. Like, of course it happened again. What else do you expect from the Bills? What else do you expect from God? Because it seems like no matter what we do, things never exactly happen the way we thought it would. 
And yet, Isaiah 61 says, when the Messiah comes, he would bring new life. Which brings me to my final point, number four, three exchanges. Isaiah 61 speaks of three, just three. He says he's going to give you freedom and release. Freedom for the captives and release from darkness of the prisoners. Comfort for those who mourn. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those of you who mourn, for you shall be comforted. That's the promise of God. And then finally, there's one final exchange. He gives us joy for our pessimistic, hopeless heaviness. He takes us who so easily give up hope, and he makes us prisoners of hope. Zechariah 9.12, God says, I'm going to make you a prisoner of hope. I'm going to make it so that, just like with the Bills and you Bills fans, you can't help yourself sometimes. You're going to hope anyways. God says, I'm going to do the same thing, but it's going to be about a far higher issue than the Bills and whether they happen to win today or not. The catacombs were places under Rome where tens of thousands of Christians were martyred for their faith. And in those catacombs, there are writings that are on the walls that still exist today. And on the roof of one of the catacombs, there are some writings that many scholars believe were actually an early Christian spiritual song. And the words go like this. The roof hides our stars, but they are shining still. And the star of Bethlehem will never set. God has visited his people. God said in Isaiah 61 that Messiah would bring a crown of beauty instead of ashes, an oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. That's what Jesus came to do. John the Baptist's expectations of the Messiah weren't too high. They were too low. John was just looking for a Messiah who would deliver him from a corrupt government. God promised the Messiah would give you a whole new life inside, and he would change everything for you. And so the question we ask this year is, will Christmas live up to our expectations? Well, it depends. If your hope, your expectation is in the Washington Irving version of Christmas, no, it probably won't live up to expectations. But if your hope is in Jesus, he has never once failed throughout all of time and history. Christ can deliver a holiday like you never could have anticipated, even a holiday where there might be shut-ins because of COVID. God can still come and visit his people. He will come and set you free. I want to end with this brief story. Tragedy stuck, struck the home of one of America's most popular poets. On July 9th, 1861, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's wife, Fanny, was near an open window where she was sealing the locks of her daughter's hair with little wax and cellophane. And no one knows exactly how it happened, whether the iron that she was using to seal it got too hot and it caught fire, or whether it was a curtain or what it was, but ultimately there was a fire and she began to scream as her whole body caught fire. Henry heard it from the next room, ran into the room, tried to put the fire out, becoming very burned in his hands and on his face. The fire was so bad, the damage to his wife's body so irreparable that the next day she succumbed and died. And Henry couldn't even attend her funeral because the burns were so bad. Years go by and his writings were 
known for being somewhat sad and forlorn. His family knew that he was still grieving. Years had gone by, and he had grown a white beard because the burns on his face made it impossible for him to even shave. But it was on Christmas Eve, three years later, that he began to pen some words that we have learned to know and love. He was age 57, and he sat down to capture something of the joy of the season. And he began the poem with these words. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill towards men. He set his pen aside and thought, how can I write about peace on earth, goodwill towards men? Well, the nation was in such turmoil. The Civil War was in the midst of its height. The battle for Gettysburg had just ended. Fathers were battling sons, brothers fighting brothers. Deaths were mounting up. But he kept on writing, and he wrote these lines. In despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. As I read those words, I thought he could be writing about today. With all that's going on with the virus, with the election, he could be writing about America today. He could be writing about the world today. Longworth then turned his heart towards God and cried out to God for hope and help. And in the midst of that time, God came and he visited Longfellow. And he finished this song with these words. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, good will to men. That's what God offers us today. Through the prophet Isaiah, through the life of our Lord, he promises us that same expectation of Christmas. Would you stand with me? Would you bow your heads? He offers that to every one of us today. Maybe for you, as you've aged, you felt Christmas just wasn't the same as it used to be. And you've blamed that traditions have gone out the window, people aren't the same. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe it's that something needs to change inside of you. Maybe you've become Ebenezer Scrooge, even towards your own faith. But he's promised, I'm going to come and I'm going to make an exchange. Where there's been sorrow, I'm going to give you hope. Where there's been discouragement, I'm going to give you joy. Where there's been turmoil, I'm going to give you peace. That's his promise to you today. Father, this Christmas, let it not be said of us that we set our affections on the things of this world. The way in which the world has portrayed this holiday, it, it absolutely has become so often about gifts and shopping and commercialization of things. Lord, we don't want that to be our focus. We want it to be on you. We want it from our youngest child up to know that Christmas is about more than that you just get some gifts. It's that God gave the greatest gift of all. 
Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our Deliverer, our great Emancipator. And Lord, for those today who are struggling inside, because I know that for some, Christmas can be a tough time because they have no family left. Or maybe there's been an estrangement and children don't come around. Or maybe just this year, because of mandates, we can't gather together with family. And so for some, it is a, a trying time. But I'm asking God for you to draw near to each one, to show yourself on their behalf, and to let them know the promise still holds if we will lay hold of it. And so today, Father, we lay hold of Jesus Christ, the risen Son of God who came, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, did many signs and wonders, but then hung upon a cross, was buried and raised the third day, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. It's to that one, that promise, that we look and lay hold today. Let it bring hope and fresh life to our souls. I pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your day. And don't forget the gifts for the kids in the area, all right? The box is in the foyer.